Amen. Would you open your Bible with me this morning to Matthew chapter 2? Matthew chapter 2. This morning we are continuing our journey through the book of Matthew to behold in the gospel of Matthew the person of Jesus Christ. And we've seen so far from chapter 1 that Jesus is the Messiah King who has come. We saw that at the beginning of chapter 1 as we went through the genealogy. And then last week we saw that this Messiah King, His coming, was to be with us so that He might save us. And this sets up a question for Matthew in chapter 2. What kind of kingdom is this King coming to? What will the ramifications be of a King coming into a world where there already are kings and kingdoms? How will the world respond That's what we're going to look at in chapter 2 today. We're going to cover the entirety of chapter 2. And chapter 2 is broken down into four parts of a story. Each part is centered on some action in the story. Some things that are happening in response to this birth of the king. And then an Old Testament quotation that tells us more about the meaning of these things. The significance of them. As we read through, we'll see... That two opposing kings and kingdoms are represented. And two responses to this true king coming are shown in the persons of the wise men or the magi and in the person of Herod the king. As we read that, look for these two responses and meditate on them. And we'll walk through the story and think more about their significance. Would you read Matthew 2? Verses 1 to 23. I'm going to read them for us. Would you follow along? Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and and when you have found him, bring me words that I may too come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. 
Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that you would help us as we seek to behold in your word this contrast of kingdoms and these responses to the true king. I pray that you'd help us have ears to understand, eyes to see your beauty, hearts that long to honor you, hearts that are soft and fertile in soil. I pray that you'd transform us by your word from rebels into worshipers. Would you help us now, we pray, by your Holy Spirit. Amen. We see at the beginning of this story that a king is born. This king comes into the scene through the words of the wise men. After Jesus is born in Bethlehem, it says in verse 1, we have these wise men coming from the east. And they say to Herod, when they arrive at Jerusalem, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They went to Jerusalem being the capital of Judea, assuming that any king who was born into this region would be born there in the most important place, right? And they come into the court of the current king. And what do they ask him? Where's the one who's born king of the Jews? Imagine Herod's response. We, we get a, a glimpse of it in verse 3, right? Herod heard this and he was troubled. Why was he troubled? As they come looking for the one who is born king of the Jews, they're bringing this question to light. Who is the true king of the Jews? As Jesus is born king of the Jews in Bethlehem, and there's a current man on the throne claiming to be king of the Jews, we see right off the bat that this incarnation is political in nature. The incarnation is political. The claim that Jesus is king of the Jews is a political claim. It has ramifications for another worldly king who would be claimed to be king of this kingdom. We know from the rest of the gospel that Jesus' claim to be king expands much further beyond merely the king of the Jews, right? He's king of the universe. But at this point, this conflict of kings is set up. Who is going to be the real king of Israel, of the Jews? We see from verse 5, Herod, Herod asks his scribes and his chief priests, to tell him where would this Christ be born. He's not, he claims to be king of the Jews, but he's not familiar with the Jewish scriptures enough to know this verse that they quote back to him. This verse in, in verse 5 that they quote back from him in verse 6 as well is from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. 
And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They say this Jesus, or this, this king, this Messiah, is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And this is from an ancient promise given to God's people in the time of Micah, through the prophet Micah. In the time that he was speaking to the people of Judah, he was indicting them for their rebellious and idolatrous worship. The beginning of Micah is full of rebuke for worship that is unfaithful, that refuses to worship God rightly according to his ways, and instead tries to worship him according to the ways of the nations. And they were ruled by wicked rulers. In chapter 3 of Micah, we hear about rulers who feast on their own people. And in the midst of this wickedness, in the midst of this rebellion, God makes this promise through the prophet that He's going to judge right now, and he's going to send them into exile. But one day, there will arise this ruler from the land of Bethlehem, who will shepherd faithfully God's people, who will lead them out of slavery to sin and lead them back to God. And this Messiah King would be born in Bethlehem. And so Herod starts grappling with this idea, and these wise men now learn the true location where they ought to seek this king. And they go to seek him. They go to seek him and they find him. We see in this narrative that in light of Jesus being born in Bethlehem, he is indeed this true king. And the reality then is that this true king is here. And if it's true that this king is here, then the right response is worship. The wise men know this. They're asking already in verse 2, right? Where is the one born king of the Jews? We have saw his star and we have come to worship him. Herod even knows that this is the right response. When he has this secret meeting with them, what does he tell them? In verses 7 and 8, he says, he says, After you found him, come to me and tell me where to find him, that I too may worship him. He doesn't really actually intend to worship him, we know from the story. But he knows that worshiping the true king is the right response. The true king is here and he ought to be worshipped. And the wise men demonstrate this right response when they go to worship him right they follow this star and it comes to rest over the place where the child is and they rejoice and go in and offer gifts and go and depart in great joy this true king is here and worship is the right response but something's not right in the kingdom we get glimpses of this already with herod's response herod is Herod is troubled in verse 3. The people of Jerusalem are troubled, likely because they don't know how this crazy king is going to react to another person claiming to be king. The scribes and the chief priests know that he's born in Judah, but they don't do anything about it. And then we see this secret meeting called to hide his true purpose. Not everything is right. Not everything is right in this new kingdom. We see in the second part of the story, verses 13 to 15, that just as a king is born, a son is called out. This is all part of the same story. This king that is born is born into a hostile kingdom with a hostile king. This is why the angel comes and warns Joseph, right, in verse 13. We see Herod's true intentions. He's going to be murderous towards this child. He's not going to leave him unharmed, but he's going to search for him and try to destroy him. To defend his kingdom. And so God says go flee to Egypt. And we get this second 
fulfillment of prophecy in verse 15. Out of Egypt I called my son. This is from Hosea chapter 11 verse 1. And God is recounting the goodness of his ways towards his rebellious people. And he says, out of, out of Egypt I have called my son. And this is just a clear reference to the Exodus. Right? God's people were enslaved under Pharaoh. And he sent Moses as his voice and delivered his people, leading them through Moses and eventually leading them through with a pillar of fire by day and a pillar of uh, or pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day, leading them out of slavery and into the promised land. When Matthew calls to mind this verse, what he is saying to us is that what what Jesus is experiencing right now is actually an Exodus type experience. Jesus is being led out by God away from danger and into a place of safety. The irony of all of this is that the place Jesus is being led out of is the promised land, right? Israel, the place where he's supposed to be safe, supposed to be accepted, supposed to be welcomed. This is the king, after all, who they've been waiting for. And yet what we see here is that Jesus himself, as this true son, is called out of Egypt And the way Matthew is using it here implies that Israel has become a new Egypt. And that Egypt is actually now the place of safety for God's people. In saying this, and in showing this, Matthew is also demonstrating to us that Jesus himself is this true son of God. We saw already that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And in calling Jesus the son here, out of Egypt I have called my son, he's not specifically talking about Jesus as the son of God. See, in the Old Testament, God's son was Israel, right? Out of Egypt I have called my son is referring to the people of God, Israel. And they were called God's firstborn son. And here we're seeing that Jesus is actually being called God's son in the sense of the true fulfillment of what Israel was called to be. The one who is led out, and later we'll see uh, through the rest of Matthew, Jesus act in ways that God's son Israel was supposed to act, but utterly failed. We'll see in Matthew 4, when he's led out into the wilderness for 40 days, and relives the wandering of God's people in the wilderness. He uses scripture, the very scriptures that talk about what Israel was supposed to learn in the wilderness. He uses those to defeat Satan and temptation, and be prove himself to be the righteous son of God. So Jesus is this true king, and he is also this true son of God, a true Israel, and he's being called out of corrupt Israel, who has now become Egypt. Israel and King Herod are imposters and pretenders. Israel as the new Egypt, is now pretending to be God's people, but not really showing themselves to be God's people. They're being unfaithful. And Herod, as the king of the Jews, who is seeking to kill the real king, is showing himself to be an imposter to the throne. And he does not take kindly to this true king escaping from his clutches. We see in verse 16 to 18, this tyrant rage. Herod goes to war, against the king 
when he sees that he's been tricked in verse 16, he becomes furious and kills all of these children. This king who is sworn to protect his people and care for them and is supposed to be a shepherd leader all through the Old Testament. That's what kings are called to do. Use their power and authority to care for their people. And we see here instead, Herod used his power and authority to kill his own people. This fits the character of Herod very well. He was someone who was even willing to kill his own wife and two sons when he thought they were going to try to overthrow him. He is a murderous tyrant, and he will do anything to hold on to his throne. And here he kills these little babies, raging war against the one true king. This is not the first time, though, that a worldly king has tried to wage war against God's people, against God's kings. This is a a war that goes back all the way to the beginning of Scripture, to Genesis 3. After Adam and Eve rejected following God and chose sin, and God showed them mercy, what he promised them is that one day the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. In Genesis 3.15, that there would be enmity, this fight between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent, and that one day the offspring of the woman would triumph. We've seen that fight play out through the whole history of God's people. This is what was playing out in the Exodus as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, sought to eliminate Israel by killing all of their babies. You remember that in the story in the beginning of Exodus? The new Pharaoh arises who doesn't trust Israel and thinks they're going to outnumber them. And so he orders Hebrew women to kill babies as soon as they're born. This is the same thing happening here in this text as happened then. The seed of the serpent, the enemies of God are waging war against him. We see that in Psalm 2, like we read in worship this morning. The nations rage, the people's plot in vain, and the kings try to figure out how they can overthrow the rule of the true king. Revelation talks about this same events in chapter 12 in a very different way. doesn't talk about it in just describing what's happening and in seeing the bloody description of Herod seeking to kill all those children. Revelation actually talks about this dragon who is waiting for this woman to give birth so that he can devour her offspring. And the offspring is delivered miraculously by God. And the woman flees into the wilderness and that serpent tries to pursue her, but he can't catch her because of the sovereignty and goodness of God. And so instead he turns to make war against her offspring. All throughout scripture, tyrant kings and pretenders to the throne make war against the true king. And that's what's happening here. That's the same thing that's happening here in Herod. Herod the great makes war against Jesus, the true king. And this wicked war brings great sorrow to God's people. That's what we see in this quotation from Jeremiah. Rachel is weeping for her children. This is a prophecy from Jeremiah in the middle of Jeremiah 31. It's in verse 15. And Jeremiah pictures Rachel, who's been long dead, But as a mother of Israel, as a representative of all the mothers of Israel, weeping for her children as they go off into exile, as they go off into what would be for an Israelite person being cast out of the promised land, going off into death. And Matthew calls that to mind and says, just like the prophet Jeremiah said, the women of Israel wept for their children during this time. 
Here the women of Israel are weeping for their children because a tyrant king has killed them. God's people are suffering on account of this war. Because of their own sin, yes, but also because of the rebellion and injustice of tyrant kings and pretenders to the throne. Matthew also quotes Jeremiah thirty-one fifteen, though, because that is a single sentence of grief in the middle of a chapter full of hope. In other words, he quotes this not just to point to grief and mourning because of the wickedness of Herod, but he quotes it to point to the hope that Jeremiah 31 contains. Jeremiah 31 is one of the places in the Old Testament where we see the promises of a new covenant that God will make with his people, where he will write the law on their heart and they will be his people and he will be their God. He's pointing to this defeat of evil that will ultimately come through this true king that has now been spared from the tyrant's raging. There is still hope, in other words. We see this hope manifest in verses 19 to 23, as God preserves his true king. Right away in verse 19, we see when Herod died. This tyrant king who would do anything to hold on to power eventually died. And you know what? It wasn't like he got his power back and he held on and kept Jesus away for years and years and years. This was about one year after he raged and killed all those children. He died. He died. He was still defeated by the true enemy, by death. He was used by Satan in this war. And and in that sense, I feel like he's ultimately a little bit of a tragic figure, just like Pharaoh from old, right? God raised up Pharaoh, hardened his heart to show the greatness of God's glory and the wickedness of sin. And he did that with Herod here as well. God is not put off by any of this raging, though. Even though a new tyrant king comes into place, one of Herod's sons, as his kingdom is split up, God is not put off and instead directs Joseph to take his family to the district of Galilee, which is actually where they're from, right? The district of Galilee in Nazareth is where they're originally from, and he directs them back home. Emphasis in this section is on God's providential provision. All through this chapter, as he's saying, this is fulfilled by this, this is fulfilled by this, this is fulfilled by this. Even to this, verse 23, he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. God is in control of it all, and God is directing the course of his true king. This means that this is not ultimately a story of some helpless family fleeing from a terrible king in danger and hiding. That's what it looks like on the outside, right? But on the inside, what's actually happening is God is directing the steps of his king, putting him into place to be ready for his mission. He's orchestrating all of this to set his king on the throne. And the raging of Herod doesn't derail God's plans at all. It actually works into them. It's like a, like a storm on a sea where, where the, the waves and everything rage on the surface and it looks like all is chaos. But if you go way down into the deeps, you don't even notice there's a storm. That's what's happening here. That's the reality of what's going on. Even though it looks like the tyrant king is winning as he wages war against the true king, that's not happening. He ultimately dies and Jesus is put in place. We have this last fulfillment statement that he would be called a Nazarene in verse 23. 
And this is not really directly quoted from anywhere in the Old Testament. That's why Matthew says what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. This is Matthew reflecting on a few things in Scripture. One of those is that the word Nazarene is a pun on the Hebrew word netzer, which is the word for branch, which we find in Isaiah 11.1, 1, right? This promise that God will raise up this righteous branch, this deliverer, who will come and be filled with the Spirit and full of righteousness and will bring peace to the earth and spread the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We see as well this play on words with the city Nazareth. He will be called a Nazarene from Nazareth. And Nazareth, being a tiny backwater village in Galilee, a place such that someone would say later in the Gospels, can anything good come from Nazareth? They would doubt that this Messiah King could possibly come from such an insignificant place. Putting these together, the, the promise of this righteous branch and the idea that he will come from an insignificant origin marries perfectly when we think about Isaiah 53, right? And this root that springs up from dry ground and that has no form or majesty that we should look at him. No, nothing that we would desire him. Jesus in other words, is going to be this suffering servant. And Matthew sees that even already right here. And that's a promise of comfort for God's people who have been suffering under the rages of the warfare against the seed of the serpent. Jesus now is in a place where he will launch his mission. The king of the universe has come to the least place, a place called Nazareth. And from there, he will launch his mission to the least people. And he will gather this new people from Jew and Gentile and lead them into his new kingdom. And the war of the tyrant hasn't stopped this mission of the king. The war of the tyrant hasn't even made a dent in it. <coughs> Excuse me. I go through all this and we see all this, I, I think, to draw out these contrasts in the, stro in the story between this true king who seems like he's weak who seems like there's no hope and he's on the run and yet if you look under the surface this is all god sovereignly orchestrating this this is him enthroning him and you see this apparently strong pretender to the throne filled with self-centered rage and who seems like a major threat and ultimately he just dies and and it's gone and we see that the true king is mightier than the pretender and the one that is truly worthy of worship. We see these two responses as well to this true king, the response of worship or war. And I think that leads us to the main point of this text, the main idea I want us to meditate on in our time remaining. And that's that the Messiah king will always be met with worship or war. The Messiah king will always be met with worship or war. This chapter two is prototypical it is, it is the pattern of what will always happen when the true king comes. Some will worship, some will wage war. This is because his claim to kingship is all-encompassing. It's a spiritual claim. It's, I am king of you. I am king of your life and your heart. And yet it's also a political claim. I am king of all the kingdoms on the earth. There is not a king who is higher than me. And so it demands that we respond to it. 
Abraham Kuyper put it this way, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord over all, does not exclaim, Mine. That's what he's doing here. As the true king is coming, he is claiming, This is mine. And therefore, it requires that we somehow respond to that. And the right response is worship. And the rebellious response is war. But there will be a response. We also see that whether worship or war is the response, God is still in sovereign control. God is still in sovereign control. He's not perturbed by whether we worship or war. He does care about what we do, but he is not put off by what we do. We even see that in Acts 4. Excuse me. We see that in Acts 4 when the disciples are persecuted and they pray and they quote Psalm 2 about the nations raging. And then they say this, for truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They see all of these things, even the eventual killing of Jesus as part of God's sovereign control. Even that kind of warfare that kills the true king is not outside of God's sovereign control. So whether worship or war, God is still in sovereign control. And we see the reality that the response of worship or war right now will still ultimately all accumulate in worship. Right? Philippians 2 talks about this when it says that God has highly exalted Jesus so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. The future is worship, whether you wage war or worship right now. If the future is worship, why does it matter right now then? If the future is all worship, why does it matter whether you worship or wage war? And the reality is it matters to you and I because what we do in response to the king demonstrates what kingdom we belong to. Whether it's that kingdom of darkness or whether it's truly the father has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. What we do affects what happens to us. Warfare against the son who will ultimately be worshipped is going to lead to death and destruction. Worship of the son is going to lead to joy and life. It matters immensely what we do. And so the question for us today then is, which will you choose, worship or war? How will you respond when the king comes to you and claims, there is not one square inch of your entire life that I do not say is mine? How will you respond? Jesus makes his claim, not just over geography or geopolitical kingdoms, but over our very lives. And friends, I think we tend to be more like Herod than we think. We might think it's an easy response, right? Like worship or war. I I, I want to worship the king. But we tend to respond like Herod. We resist Jesus' claims over our life. We resist his political claims over our life. When we refuse to obey his word, Matthew is full of Jesus' ethical teaching on how we ought to behave as citizens of the kingdom. And they're summed up in love your neighbor as yourself, right? But they flow out of all of his goodness of who he is. And we resist all the time loving our neighbor. Especially when it costs us something. We tend to resist Jesus' spiritual claims over our life too. We respond instead 
of responding to the king with joy and happiness and worship, we respond with unbelief and idolatry. We turn from him and think there's someone else that will make us happy. We refuse to love God. And this is because knowledge is not our problem. Rebellion is. Rebellion is the source of warfare. Rebellion against the true king leads to waging war against the true king. The only way to respond to the true king with worship is through faith. Is through faith, which is given by the Spirit. So the question for us is, how will we respond when the Messiah King claims lordship over our lives? Will we claim to be king? Or will we claim that he is king? And will we respond with worship? If we think about this, we might ask, isn't this just kind of holding a gun to our head? Is this really a choice if... If we're going to be defeated anyway, and uh, there's only joy to be had in worshiping him, is this really a choice? Or is it just a false choice leading to us to be some kind of worshiping robot or something like that? And I would say no, that it is not a false choice. See, it's not a false choice because worshiping the king, submitting to his kingship, living according to his kingdom rule, ultimately leads to our flourishing joy happiness, peace, comfort. It leads to life. It leads to these things because God has created us in his image to live under his rule and to flourish under that rule. So what God is doing is not so much holding a gun to our head and saying, you need to choose to worship me or I'm going to get you. What he is doing is he's holding out this fullness of life and saying, this is what leads to happiness and joy. Rejoice that the true king is here. Because if you don't, you will ultimately be destroyed. Rebellion against the true king is horribly self-destructive. Just look at what it leads to in Matthew 2. Right? The wise men who acknowledge that this is the true king and come to worship him, what do they do? They rejoice exceedingly with great joy. The king, Herod, who claims to be king and rebels and wants nothing to do with this true king, what does he do? He rages, he's furious, he's murderous. And ultimately he dies. Ultimately, rebellion is horribly self-destructive. Despite the fleeting pleasures of sin, it will always lead to suffering and sadness and ultimately death. This is not God just trying to command us for the sake of showing he's in charge and we're not. This is God seeking to have us enter into life. Seeking to recoup what we lost in the garden when we turned away from him and rebelled. This is the true king coming and bringing his kingdom, which is glorious. And he calls us to respond with worship. What might it look like then, briefly, to choose worship rather than war? I want to give an example in light of it being Mother's Day. I think it would be good to reflect a little bit on how motherhood itself, embracing that, is a response to the true king of worship. Jesus claims kingship over every area of our lives, and that means Jesus claims kingship over motherhood. Mothering is a self-sacrificing act of worship. Worship is often costly. We see that in the Magi, bringing the gifts, right? Making that long journey. All of that effort, uh, motherhood, in a similar way, costs, a, costs something. 
It costs often sacrificing your own desires and your own claim to ruling your life. Our culture rages against this idea, right? Our, our culture rages against motherhood. We may not see it on Mother's Day, especially like we are full of sentimentality about Mother's Day, which is ironic when the rest of the year, the culture rages against the idea that being a mother is a good and valuable thing. Being a mother is seen as an offense to personal self-rule. Because if you have this relationship imposed upon you, then you are not truly free to do what will make you happy. We see this most manifest in the raging of abortion rights advocates. We saw this this week. If you watched any of the response to the Supreme Court leak, you know that that made many people very angry, not because an opinion was leaked, but because there's a threat to personal autonomy. There's a threat to self-rule. Our culture would say motherhood is in many ways a denial of, of your freedom to be happy. The message at the core of that is freedom from any other ruler but yourself is what is needed to make you happy. And so embracing motherhood and doing what the Bible teaches, which is embracing our God-given roles with joy, is actually a way of responding to the reign of King Jesus with worship. Whether that's through biological motherhood or foster care or adoption or spiritual mothering other young people in the church. Anytime we respond with God-given joy to the roles he's given us, we are responding to the reign of the king with worship. The same could be said for fatherhood, for what it looks like to live as a faithful single person, for what it looks like to live in relationship with one another, for what it looks like to be a faithful a faithful child or a faithful employee or a faithful whatever we might say we do all to the glory of god we do our work as unto christ and when we do we respond to the reign of the king with worship that's what it looks like it's romans 12 1 right present your bodies as living sacrifices for this is your spiritual act of worship it's that kind of response to the coming of the king. That's what it looks like. How do we as rebels then choose life though? If we're predisposed to this kind of rebellion. To moving away, moving away from the reign of the king. How do we choose life? The gospel itself is a royal declaration. That Jesus has been made king of everything and everyone. But as king he doesn't use this authority. And this power for his own self gain. He's not looking for worshipers merely because he's lonely and needs to be propped up in his own self-esteem. What Jesus does is he uses his reign as king to come to a world that would reject him, where he would have to flee with his parents out of the promised land into Egypt. He uses his royal authority to come to a world where he would be cast out of the center of the world in Jerusalem and cast to the outcast outside over in Nazareth. He uses his authority ultimately to lay down his own life for the sake of his people, the sake of rebels in his kingdom. And he does this so that he can lead his people out of the oppressive rule of sin and Satan and death and into the glorious rule of his kingdom. And he offers peace, terms of peace to all rebels, 
To all of us who would rebel against him, he comes and he says, here's my terms of peace. Repent from your rebellion. Turn and worship me. You will experience exceeding joy and happiness and fullness if you do. And the good news of the gospel is that he extends this beyond the borders even of his earthly kingdom in the sense of Jerusalem. He extends it to anyone, even Gentile wise men. Even these wise men who had no hope of knowing God can be led by God through miraculous means to come and to worship the king. Anyone like you and I can be treated as the new people of God under the true king when we turn from our rebellion and worship him. That's the promise of the gospel. That's the hope that we have. Let's pray. King Jesus, we praise you as the true king. As the one who did not use your kingly authority for your own gain, but instead emptied yourself of everything and laid down your life being obedient even to the point of death on a cross, so that we could be reconciled to you. We confess that you are indeed exalted with a name above every name. We look forward to that day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess. We look forward to the day when we will enter into the fullness of your kingdom. Would you help us to respond to your claims of kingship in our life, not with rebellion, not with fury, not with rage, not with warfare. But would you help us respond with rejoicing? Would you help us respond with faith? Would you help us respond with worship? We pray in your name and for your glory and for our joy. Amen.